0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today.
1: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move, or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat.
3: Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
4: T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours.
1: Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.
0: This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Las Vegas and in particular at the Park MGM at Nomad. And one of the reasons for that, of course, is the annual Virtuoso Travel Week. And for those of you who are regular listeners to the show, you already know what I'm about to tell you. It's madness. It's 6,515 people having, I can't even calculate the number of four minute meetings. It's speed dating on steroids and then some. And what are they all talking about? The largest industry in the world, in particular, luxury travel. And joining me now, the chairman of Virtuoso. Matthew Webter, tell you, sir.
6: Great to be back here with and you. And
0: we do this every year, Matthew. We sure do. Uh, but now this year, we have new buzzwords to talk about. Yes. Right? We have buzzwords like over-tourism. Mm-hmm. We have buzzwords like currency fluctuation. Mm-hmm. We have buzzwords about, once again, trying to redefine what is a luxury travel experience. And everybody here is doing just that, right? You're competing for an audience that has higher expectations, higher demands, Uh Maybe more money in their wallet because the economy is doing better. But coming with that comes how do you define what luxury travel is in a way that people will have a better experience?
6: Well, I think the, the one thing that we really focus on at Virtuoso and the reason, uh, and by the way, I can give a calculation, 278,000 minutes uh, appointments. I mean, and that's uh, 1.4 million minutes, which is 2.7 years and four days.
0: Okay, so who's counting?
6: <laughs> but who's counting. <laughs> yeah. But the purpose of all that actually it does kind of answer your question because, you know, as the diversity and the and the size of the market has grown, um, the definition you know, of luxury has changed dramatically from the perspective that there is no one you know size fits all, and I think that uh, what we focus on is the the value of the travel advisor's ability to really understand. The, the, the needs and desires and even the unrecognized needs and desires of the customers and being able to match it with the, the, the kind of products that will, will actually satisfy them. Um, today's travelers are very sophisticated, and they're not, and they're not linear. I mean, the, you know, different trips demand different, different things that they want, um, and I think it's important that this type of um, relationship building that we do actually changes the experience for the traveler. Because when we send somebody and I send you anywhere in the world and I actually have a personal relationship, you know, there's just something else that happens uh, that's, that's quite
0: magical. Well, let me give you an example. Recently, believe it or not, I came across uh, the actual documents from the very first trip I ever took with my parents. 1962, and it was a letter from the travel agent to my mother, typed single-spaced on onion skin paper for those people who are old enough to remember what onion skin paper is. And it gave us our minute-by-minute itinerary, which we followed without ever asking a question. All right? There was no conversation. Right, right. Hey, we're going to go to Europe. Tell us what to do. We'll do it. That's it. That comp- That kind of equation has changed.
6: Well, absolutely. And I think one of the biggest uh, mistakes that people might, or misconceptions is a lot of people think that, you know, you uh, <laughs> who think that going to a travel advisor is because you don't know what you're doing, actually today travel advisors are incredible collaborators, and their power is not just, you know, they're not, you're know they not there because they know everything and you know nothing. In fact, our customers come to us incredibly well-traveled, incredibly well-researched, and the, the point of the relationship is to actually collaborate, uh, utilize our networks, uh, utilize our relationships, um, and uh, have the community knowledge of, of what we do all over the world you know, we have actual specialized companies in over 120 countries. So it's no longer about, you know, I can find you a guide. It's like I have a special guide that you're going to love.
0: And you have a conversation.
6: Absolutely. Well, that's a big one that you've always said. I mean, um, the art of the conversation and having deeper, more meaningful conversations is, is one of the ways that you can improve travel. Um, you know, because you can read all you want. I've, I've said this for a while now. You know, we live in an era where answers are free and they're pretty much worth that sometimes. I think one of the most incredible things great advisors do is they ask really good questions. And they make the client think of things in different perspectives um, that improve the, the outcome of, of how they decide what to do. They, they throw in ideas they may not have thought of. They refine um, programs. Um, and like designers, there's, there's all kinds of nuances in sequencing of trips. Um, how to do that. We just had a a great story that uh, that I talked about. Somebody had never used a travel advisor, and I thought one of the things that was fabulous was when they came back, they said, you know, by having had this and having felt so cared for and being so organized within a framework, and in that framework, you can also have all the free time you want. He goes, but you know, this was the last trip that I took with my family before my youngest went to college, and for the first time, I was able to be completely present with my kids, not having to worry about everything else and me having been the one that arranged everything. So it's this great collaboration between the advisor and the traveler.
0: Of course, it's about giving up control. Well, but
6: it's, but you know what? Control is an illusion anyway, right? (laughs) Especially in travel, because things are going to happen. It actually, it's about having somebody, having your back, because in travel, it's not, you know, it's not if something's going to go wrong, but if something does happen and there's some disruption... It's knowing that you have somebody that you can rely on that's there to help you out. One of the greatest things, as you know, when we have major kind of disruptions like the volcanic ash issues and things like that, a lot of times we get more business because that's when we prove our mettle, right? When, somebody, when somebody's got an issue and, you know, and your advisor has already rebooked you before you even landed while everybody else is trying to rush to the customer service desk.
0: Well, speaking of customer service, that being the oxymoron of the year... Mm-hmm. The key issue in in the world of travel, which is a service industry, is not the delivery of the service. It's how you recover.
6: Absolutely, the best loyalty. I mean, obviously, you want to you know you want to deliver fantastically, but I can one hundred percent tell you that, that the most the deepest, most loyal um, relationships are are, are uh, made when something goes wrong and the way you recover, um, because that's when the chips are down and that's when you realize the kind of you know the kind of organization you're dealing with.
0: I always try to tell people travel being one of the largest industries in the world, arguably sometimes the largest industry in the world, I look at it as news. So I'm not there to promote something. I'm there to present information in a credible way that hopefully then people can make intelligent decisions about the choices they want to make. Hasn't that changed the dynamic of what your advisors do as opposed to being selling travel versus presenting it?
6: Well, absolutely. Because um, again, it goes back to this whole idea that that, that our job as advisors is advice you know not you know in fact i you can call us experts but the problem is is that is that you can find all this information and it's and again i think it goes back to this whole thing about asking really good questions and so it's not just about telling you what it is but it's about making you think about introducing new things new combinations and things like that also the value of a travel advisor is before during and after the trip really especially great, after well exactly i've been on the soapbox for years the very best advisors the reason they built such great loyal relationships is that when clients come back, they debrief. And they don't just ask a generic question like, how was your trip? They ask something specific like, if there was anything you could change about how this trip was, you know, went, what would it be? And that's a much more inviting question. And then when they open up, if I do my job right, I learn, I nuance, and then the trip keeps getting better and better. And with every trip my knowledge and my ability to serve you and and be more more thoughtful in, in how to make uh how to deliver for you just gets getting better and better.
0: How many advisors are here right now?
6: We have a uh, 3083 advisors from about Again, who's people. counting? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, not that I knew. Um and about the same number of our partners. So we do these one-on-one, we do 4-minute appointments in the morning, which was a kind of a grueling form of speed dating, and then we do matched appointments in the afternoon where advisors and partners ask for each other.
0: And how much business is being done?
6: Um, we estimate somewhere between half a billion and 800 million comes out of this every year. And everybody shows up? And everybody shows up, and it keeps growing. Little by little, last year was the first time we actually had to, we had to close it down. We now take over Bellagio, Vidara, and, and Aria as far as their convention space, and um,
0: Uh, And and to put this in perspective, 22 years ago, how many showed up? 22 years ago,
6: let's say, I'd say maybe about um, 800. So it's grown a little bit. Can it grow too much? Well, what we're doing now is um, we actually do smaller versions of Virtual Soul Travel Week in different cities around the world. Um, Some of them as small as 200. Uh, the the next year's program in Sydney is going to be almost a thousand people, so probably in a couple more years we'll have you know six thousand here and a thousand in Sydney, and who knows where it goes.
0: You were talking about working when we went to the break with WTTC, the World Travel and Tourism Council, to come up with the data to support the stuff that you're doing.
6: Right, and you were asking us what was one of our biggest challenges. So the data I was referring to because that the overall growth of tourism. So the one of the, the biggest challenges we're dealing with is we've actually introduced a product called Wanderlist, which is a digital platform that allows people to kinda, uh, the gamification of capturing your, your travel dreams. Well, why are we doing that? We're actually trying to get our customers to work, to think about where they want to go in a longer period of time. So we're coming up with two, three, four, five-year plans. Doesn't mean it can't be changed. But through that process, as tr- tourism grows, it enables us to actually work with our customers further out in advance. And you know, to do luxury travel and to do experiential travel, if we have more time, you know, it used to be like, oh, I'm going to get a great deal if I went to the last minute. Well, guess what? The best places in the world, they're getting sold out. And they're there. You want to, so you want to, you want to be a little more strategic, and a little more purposeful in trying to figure out where you want to go when, um, so that we can be more um, uh, proactive in booking these things further in advance.
0: All right. Well, speaking further in advance, where do you see the growth patterns in terms of destinations or experiences?
6: Well, first of all, just look at the airline numbers. I mean, we're about to go from you know what, four point whatever billion to eight billion uh, tourist uh, trips in a year. So there's tremendous there's there's tremendous growth in 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 overall tourism. Um, and then you were but talking what, about yeah, but where is it going? Well, it's it's doubling. No, no, but I'm years. talking about
0: specific directions. What destinations are the hot ones that you're seeing as you're compiling yeah. these wander lists? Well, first
6: of all, anything for in our market, anything that's quote unquote exotic, you know. Um, those kind of destinations. But we see it in two patterns. We see that the the, the general pattern is people want to go back to familiar places, but they want to do it differently. They want to experience it in different ways. Um, And then there's this pool. So there's always this kind of tension between our clients, between the pool of familiarity of somewhere that they love to go back to, but they want to do something different versus the pull of, you know, going somewhere that that they've never been to before. So there's a lot of, um, you know, one of my favorite destinations in the world is Africa. Africa's doing really well right now. Um, Then you look at places, a lot of hot places, um, Mongolia, Bhutan, some of those areas like that. Um, You know, the other destination that's been super hot over the last couple of years and getting hotter right now is Japan. Um, Obviously, we have the Olympics next year, but I think that one of the reasons that Japan is so hot is that Japan is one of those places in the world where you really still feel this uniqueness of culture you know and i think that because they were the second largest economy for so many years they were a bit like us like i don't need to change every sign in, into english <laughs> we're in japan right you come to my country you deal with it so there's in some ways it's kind of interesting because it's become an attraction um, because you do feel when you go to Japan that you're in the, you're in this in, in this culture and you really are in, infused
0: in that culture. When we talk about places that are growing, now we get to t- you know to talk about over tourism. Uh, you had a seminar on that at mm-hmm. your conference. Bottom line is you have countries or cities that are making public statements about banning cruise ships from certain ports about about closing down certain cities, about finding people for sitting down at the Spanish Steps in Rome. I mean, where are we right now with that?
6: Well, I mean, obviously with growth comes these opportunities and these challenges. And I think that, first of all, we, we, what we talked about is just our responsibility as advisors and just trying to educate our, our travelers you know, with respects to culture and what what's appropriate but one of the things that we shared this morning on the on the luxury side uh, which tends to be some of the more seasoned travelers um, we were able to go into our data warehouse and actually see that since 2008 um, you know the the percentage of our clients traveling to places in what's called off-peak in 2008 it was like maybe 15 percent more than peak and that number has doubled. I mean, it's sort of so, more and more of our clients are not going places in the very peak season, um, which actually is a good thing. I mean, and they're sophisticated travelers. I personally Paris love Paris in
0: January works for me.
6: I lo- I, and you know what? A lot of people underestimate. I mean, because in a lot of those times, or those quote unquote off peak times, it's the cultural season, it's the time when you get to, you know, really interact with the locals in a, in a much better way. So I do think there's a lot of things that we all need to do. I mean, there's 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 technologies and policies. You know, we talked about um, some of the some of the city centers that are being closed. That you know, made pedestrian. So I do think it's a it's a you know it's a, it's a joint effort. But I do believe that it is the um, you know ultimately is the self determination of the people of a destination that need to decide what it is that they that is right
0: for them. But it is a double-edged sword. They want growth, they want revenue. In certain countries where the GDP is almost totally dependent on travel and tourism, you have an internal battle going on that nobody wants to to close the door because they feel they'll they'll, they'll just go broke.
6: Well, and that's where and and, and you're right because but then the, the 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 flip side of that is that if you are dependent on that and you don't you better manage, manage, manage it, it, then yeah. you won't have a product. <laughs> So, so you, you, know, um, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, well, and I'm actually, very, I'm actually very hopeful about it.
0: Well, short of putting turnstiles in St. Mark's Square in Venice, hopefully we can figure out another way. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic... My next guest is a New Yorker. In fact, we just realized we worked together at NBC. Didn't know it at the time. That's how big NBC was. We were on different floors uh, back at 30 Rock. But then uh, somebody got smart and hired him to come out here to become the president of entertainment and sports at MGM Resorts. George Klafkopf, how are you? I'm doing terrific, thank you. What does this job mean?
7: Uh, This job primarily is overseeing... MGM Resorts, 37 publicly ticketed entertainment venues. So my group does the booketing, marketing, ticketing, and operating of those venues. And then I also happen to oversee our sports betting and interactive gaming and sports book businesses.
0: Wow. That's a lot of stuff to cover.
7: It is. It's fun. It is.
0: It's, it's one thing to come into a situation like this and have to cover all that, but then you have to d- you're developing stuff at the same time.
7: That's right. Always trying to find the next new act, trying to bring in
0: new interesting things for our guests to go and see. Well, let's start about the old interesting things, because some of those things persevere. Yeah. What's the one thing, it's sort of like, you know, what's the one thing a chef is never going to take off the menu? What's the one thing you're not going to take off the
1: menu?
7: Well, we've had a great 25-year uh, run with O at the Bellagio, which is kind of the preeminent of our Cirque du Soleil shows. We have five shows, soon going to six with Cirque du Soleil, but but O's the original and the preeminent show. And we actually just added uh, more casts so that we can go to seven days a week sometime next year.
0: And then, of course, what's happened in Las Vegas all around the place, not just at MGM, is the word residency, yes. right? You have to see Celine Dion or Elton John or Cher. Yep. Who have you bringing? Who are you bringing Well, up? we
7: hope you see Cher because she's at one of our properties, right. uh, the Park Theater, which is actually in this building. Right. And in addition to Cher, we have Janet Jackson and Lady Gaga and Aerosmith and Bruno Mars, and we'll soon be announcing quite a few more for 2020.
0: Now, what does res- residency entail? They're here for how long?
7: Well, it, it's different for each act, but primarily means a recurring uh, set of performances where they come in for a couple weeks at a time. They may play five or six or seven performances over a two-week stretch, and then they'll come back every couple of months or every quarter.
0: And they stay at the hotel? They do not.
7: They stay at one of our hotels. They for sure. do? Yeah, they
0: stay in-house? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, Because in the old days, they didn't. In the old days, they put them no. out in some, some mansion out there near Wayne Newton's house. You
7: know? No, we have beautiful suites and places for them to stay long-term, and they're very comfortable. And I think you know, for the artists, it's a great opportunity to put the money and the investment into creating a great show and to be able to have their fans come to them as opposed to have to travel around and find their fans You know, with a city that gets... 42, 43 million visitors a year. You know, e- Every week, we have 800,000 new people coming into the city looking for something to do. And you got the tickets for them. Absolutely.
0: In fact, last year, 8.6 million tickets you sold.
7: That's right. To yeah. how many different events? Uh, to over 8,000, over 8,050 uh, live events, yes, uh, last year in our 37 venues.
0: And so it's 24-7 when you think about it.
7: Yes. Uh, I mean, Is there any time you're actually dark? There are no days of the year where we don't have shows. There's Nobody takes a day off?
0: No. <laughs> what about prize fighting? For me, that's sort of like this this kind of a curve. It's either really big or it's not.
7: Well, I think every three to four months, we have a big prize fight in, in Vegas. And because of the nature of the properties that we run, we run the three largest arenas in town. Uh, Those always happen on our properties, and and we love having them. Uh, They drive a lot of our business. We bring in a lot of gamblers. We bring in a lot of uh, tourists who come just to see the prize fights. And I think historically, Vegas has been kind of known for prize fighting, and that was the beginning of Vegas as a sports destination. That's how it started. That's how it started. But really what we've become is the sports capital of the world, right? We we are adding professional sports. It seems like every six months uh, we bought and moved uh, the WNBA team, the Las Vegas Aces here. You have hockey? We have uh, one of our tenants at T-Mobile Arena, which is the largest arena in town that we run, uh, has as a tenant the Vegas Golden Knights, who have had a tremendous... By the way, their
0: last season was unbelievable.
7: Uh, Both of their first two seasons, fantastic, and in their first season... They almost made it, um, man. They almost... Went went to the Stanley Cup Final. Almost won. Yeah. And, you know, we have the Raiders coming uh, just across the street from our property. And you're building
0: the stadium there right now.
7: Yeah, we're we're not building it. The Raiders are building it, Uh, but it's uh, uniquely located just across the 15 Highway, and... And it's about a three-minute walk to Mandalay Bay. And we're incredibly fortunate that we happen to own the eight closest hotels.
0: Gee, what a a
7: surprise. What a surprise. What a coincidence. And you'll be selling those tickets too? We won't be selling the tickets. The Raiders will be selling the tickets directly. Uh, We're really about putting together packages for fans who are going to be coming for the game, whether they're Raiders fans or fans of the visiting team. And we'll be putting on the best tailgate the country's ever seen.
0: Although I have to tell you, I've never forgiven the Raiders because they left L.A. twice. Yes.
7: (laughs) Yeah, well, we're really happy to have them coming here
0: cool deal so is there any sport you you don't have an NBA team yet
7: we don't have an uh, an NBA team although we are home to the uh, WNBA all-star game as well as as having the aces and then with the NBA we do quite a few programs during the year we almost have 12 months worth of programming the summer league is here for the whole summer every year and we just got done with USA basketball and uh, in in December we have the G League coming in and so we have NBA players coming
0: through uh, our properties all the time and we love it. We're talking with George Klyavkov, the president and entertainment of entertainment and sports for all the MGM resorts. Is there a, is there a celebrity here that you've not been able to get?
7: No, really not. I mean, there are celebrities that we want to get that we're working
0: on, but no one has said no. No one. What's the okay without naming <laughs> names? What's the most ridiculous demand a celebrity has made?
7: Oh, the, you know they're actually really good to work. I'm with. not going about the yeah,
0: m- having the red. Yeah, m- the red m, m-, 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 m- we, and in the thing. Yeah,
7: we don't run into that. We we do run into particular issues with folks who like one of our properties or another property to stay at. So sometimes we have to clear some room space for folks. Uh, then we have bands who have multiple people in the band, and we want to make sure we're treating all the band members equally. No, there
0: are bands with multiple personalities disorders in the band.
7: That, that sometimes happens. We've been oh, really very you fortunate. Think? You really think? <laughs> We've been really fortunate.
0: But I mean... I love to see the contract writers in some of these deals where they're they're asking for you know just like black licorice or something
7: no that I mean that's an urban myth I think that doesn't happen that often, really yeah,
0: okay. Yeah. what's the one act that you thought would just do okay that went through the roof
7: well I think we we're very fortunate on our timing of signing Lady Gaga well, we signed her before her movie came out, and we signed her before uh some of her performances and I would say that uh, that's just been off the charts. Lady Gaga has turned out to be the hottest thing in the world just as we were opening her residency. So that's more timing than anything else, but she's been fantastic.
0: And is there a performer that will, you will allow to go longer than an hour?
7: Of course, most of our performers go a little bit longer than an hour. We we don't do two-hour sets, as you know, in Vegas. We like people to get on to the next thing, and, and folks want to do multiple things while they're here for a few days. So it's symbiotic in that way.
5: If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline,
1: we really don't care.
0: I am always impressed and never surprised anymore about how how Las Vegas continues to reinvent itself, not just in terms of, of the infrastructure and the buildings, but in terms of the shows. And joining me now, the president of events. I love this title. He's the president of events and nightlife. Can nightlife have a president? Absolutely, it can. It does, because he's got the job. Sean Christie, how are you? I showed up. They gave me the title. I like that title. Yes, thank you. I I would like that title just to be able to walk up to people going, excuse me, but I'm the president of Nightlife. What does that mean? What does that job mean?
4: Well, I think over the years as Nightlife has evolved, it really just means uh, experience. And it means how customers after a certain hour connect. Um, So in many ways, it means hospitality. It means um, lifestyle. And it kind of means the 2.0 of the way that people like to, you know, have fun after 9 p.m. at night.
0: And of course... In a city without clocks, that could be anything.
4: It can, and it's actually evolved into over the past decade in this town, I think around the country and world, into what we would refer to as day life. but then I'd have a really long title.
0: How'd you like to wear that jacket to work tomorrow morning? Oh, as a matter of fact, I would. That's yeah. right. But let's talk about that, because like five or six years ago, it was the pool scene. Everybody had cabana. It was cabana stuff and the nightclubs right? That's correct. I mean, I was seeing figures, I think Las Vegas, I think is the single largest consumer of uh, absolute vodka. I mean, and and, and not in the small bottles, by the way, we're talking the big ones, right? Leaders. Yeah. And they come by the, they come by the train load. They do. It's unbelievable. So what's changed since then? You still have a, a huge
4: pool scene, right? Yeah. You know, coincidentally, I think that the pool scene, uh, has means many different things just like restaurants do, but the pool scene is actually still growing. Um, just because people want to be outside in better weather, especially in the areas where in the Midwest or East Coast in March or October, we're still 70 degrees here. So, in many ways, it's grown.
0: What's interesting to me is if you look at guest surveys around the country in terms of hotels, the two things that people will always say they want is a health club and a pool, and they never use them. Here they do.
4: Absolutely. think that uh, you know, here they use both, because I think Las Vegas has really, over the past 18 years that I've been here, but specifically the past 10, I think the idea that you can come here, have a good time, and still you know, enjoy yourselves and have wellness, uh, Park MGM would be a, you know, pretty much a direct example of that explain well we host regular yoga sessions out at the pool um there's a prolific gym
0: at 11 o'clock at night not at 11 o'clock at night, 11 <laughs>
4: o'clock in the morning. That's the 24-hour thing. Right. So I think the idea that, you know, back in the day, you know, when I first got here, again, around 2000, um, the pools weren't really a thing. So in many right. ways, maybe you just slept in. And now I think that time is precious. People are here for two and a half, three days, and they want to make the most of it.
0: And if it's if it's an opportunity for them or an, or a, or an experience, they take it. Uh, experience always wins. All right. So let's talk about we know what's happening. What's not happening? Meaning what did MGM and the other uh, operators think was going to be a cool experience that didn't fly?
4: Well, I think the only way you learn is to fail forward. Sure. So there's a uh, countless amount of examples of things that have not worked, but maybe have spun off other things that have worked. So
0: Give me, give me one example. Yeah. Well,
4: you know, God lives in the details, and so it's all about execution, so... We've got a great new thing opening at Mandalay uh, Bay uh, called Happy Place, which is, you know, kind of a new age um, idea of interactive environments where people come in, have experiences, basically take pictures and things like that. And I think that earlier execution of that might be art installations and more traditional um, gallery setups that didn't have the teeth that consumers are looking for now. I do think those things are important, but I think that as you look towards the next generation of consumers, the idea that I can interact with, almost physically touch, and then share with my friends on my phone experiences, that is an example of what was and what is.
0: So basically we're living in the in the world of Instagrammable everything.
4: I, I, I believe that at a certain age, or below a certain age, or not excluding people because my grandmother's 94 years old and she's still, she's obsessed with Facebook, um, that now it's not good enough to just have something good. It has to be visually pleasing as well. And the standard has been raised higher as a result of that. And it has to pay off. Has to pay off. And I think that when you do something with that in mind, that the consumer, you're kind of checking all five senses. And so the idea that you've set it up for things like your phone. On Instagram is just another layer, but it still has to be good, otherwise people don't care.
0: So part of the experience that you guys are trying to work on here is essentially a plug-in.
4: Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we, I mean, it all goes back to the way you feel, because if you feel a certain way, you're more inclined to share that regardless of how it looks. But if you combine how it looks with the way that you feel or the way that we tried to make you feel, that's where magic is
0: then created. I remember way before your time when MGM opened up their theme park, a total disaster. I mean, it was so bad. And now, of course, that's no longer there. They, by the way, they gave me a coin when I came here then that <laughs> yeah. gave me a lifetime entrance to that park. I want answers. Why? I, I think you need a refund of some sort. <laughs> but I still have the coin. You know Good. why? Because that reminds me of you know, what didn't really work cool. What a great memento. Right
8: baby beside me at the wheel, cruising and playing the radio, with no particular place to go.
0: Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. We're always interested in travel trends. I get inundated with statistics on an almost hourly basis about what's up, what's down, ranging from Donald Trump's tariffs against China to the value of the rand, of the pound, the euro against the U.S. dollar, uh, and, of course, how it benefits you or necessarily how it impacts you Good, bad, or ugly. And Joining me now, Senior Vice President of Leisure and Independent Advisor at the Ovation Travel Group, Gina Gabbard. How are you? Good, Peter. How are you? Good. Well, you know, I'm going to go right to the source because you guys are the, are the booking agents. You guys, yes. are, you guys are getting the phone calls. You're getting the inquiries. People either saying where they want to go or demanding where they want to go. One of the two, right? Correct. Yes. What are the trends that you're seeing? I mean, I see right now, if you're just following the power of the U.S. dollar, I mean, we all want to go to either Argentina or South Africa. It is such a a buyer's market.
3: Absolutely. And, um, you know, we we find that so many of our clients are loving Argentina. They're loving even Peru. Um, So South America is extremely hot. We're also Uh, seeing... And by the way...
0: To give you an idea of what I'm talking about, the buying power of the U.S. dollar against the Argentinian peso is seven times more than what it was just six months ago. It's amazing. And we're not talking about airfares or hotel rates, which can be adjusted, but what can't be adjusted is basic goods and services that the locals have to pay for, whether it's a taxi ride or a night on the town or a tube of toothpaste. That's where you benefit as a traveler.
3: Absolutely. You know, I, I would tell you that for a lot of our travelers, they're really looking for those local experiences, and so when I think about the different destinations within um, South America. There's so many beautiful local experiences that people can have. So that's something, too, that um, they're really loving these days. Well,
0: see if you agree with me on this. I mean, and I say this as an embarrassed American, right? Mm -hmm. Americans are the most geographically ignorant people on the face of the planet. Agreed. I mean, they do not own an atlas, and if they do, they use it as a doorstop. I mean, they... (laughs) They they don't know where, you know, it's like the, the couple that comes back on a vacation. Where'd you go? Aruba. Where's that? I don't know. We flew. Okay, yeah. so we got that part. Right? Correct. So you have to educate your own clients, not just in terms of the experiences they want, but giving them a, just a sense of place as to where they're going.
3: Absolutely. And we do that from a variety of ways. You know, obviously our travel advisors are very well-traveled themselves, so we even talk to them about, the easy connections or maybe the nonstop flights for instance a lot of our travelers are out of the northeast so out of new york we're very fortunate to have a lot of nonstop flights around the world so it's even how how long are the flights how quickly can we get them into the destination and experiencing everything it has
0: i mean given the the new extended range of so many different aircraft types i used i like to laugh when somebody says to me oh i don't want to go there it's, it's flight's too long i said no be happy you can get there and, and the bottom line is I always take the longest nonstop flight I can get because who wants to break it up six times?
3: Absolutely. You want to get there as quickly as you can.
0: I know. Now, the nonstop flight from Singapore to Newark, that's an interesting flight because they finally got wise at, at Singapore Airlines. They don't even have an economy class on that plane. It's economy plus mm-hmm. where they show you photographs of people dead in economy. <laughs> I mean, Because that's, that's a 19-hour flight. Yeah.
3: You need to be in business class.
0: Can I see that? Can I hear that again? You, you need, need to be, be in business, business. class. <laughs> you know what? People beg every day. Yes. Uh, but, but seriously, even as, as a former college kid who learned how to sleep on the tray table, I've still developed what I call my center seat zen. I don't care what my boarding pass says, what my airline reservation says. I'm convinced I'm in the center seat next to the two sumo wrestlers. So what, <laughs> I, do, so what I do is I just realize, okay, I'm going to be sleeping on the tray table. And then if if it doesn't happen, I'm pleasantly surprised. And if it doesn't happen, if it does happen, I'm not I'm not I'm not upset about it because I wasn't expecting more.
3: Do you travel with your own pillow?
0: No. I, I do. Really?
3: Absolutely. Does it have a name? <laughs> yes, it does. Actually, it's called Slip. So it's a silk. You pillow. named your pillow? Well, no, that's the actual brand. Oh, sorry. Okay, but fine. yes, it's it's a silk pillow, which is so nice. It helps you sleep no matter where you are. A nice little silk. Eye mask, you can go out like a light anywhere.
0: What I do is I have the industrial strength Darth Vader headphones. <laughs> I mean, I okay. look like Rick Moranis right. in Spaceballs, okay? And for me, that works for me because I'm, telling, I'm sending a message to anybody around me, don't talk to me, and I'm having great concert sound, mm-hmm. concert hall sound, and I'm done with a good playlist. You can, you can That's do good,
3: yeah. You always have to have a good playlist. Are you
0: seeing changes in, in people in terms of their booking patterns on the seats they want on the planes?
3: Well, certainly for a lot of our clients, we are seeing them take at least, at minimum, economy plus. But most of our clients are loving and they almost demand business class or first class, depending on the aircraft cabin.
0: You know, it's Mm -mm. almost a reverse psychology thing, the way airlines are pricing their seats and and, and positioning their seats as let's pick the least abusive, Mm -hmm. right, the least violent, right? Like they'll show you the first... Price on the on the website, which is which is the dreaded draconian basic economy, and people don't realize that until they book it and realize all the things they're not getting.
3: Yeah, no changes, no baggage.
0: Right. Yeah. No breathing. Yeah. I mean, right? No food. No food. Well, let's well. I can live with that. <laughs> but the point is, people if they're gonna book on a website, they better understand page five of the website. Exactly. Because if they don't get the page five, they don't, they're not going to get sticker shock.
3: Correct. See, that's where we come in. And travel advisors are really there to help take the traveler through that, that experience and really guide them so that we can make sure that they're going to get exactly what they want and then some. We're really anticipating the needs.
0: So basically, if I call you on the phone, your first response to me would be, uh-uh-uh. Could,
3: <laughs> could be. Could be. Right. Could be, yes.
0: Now, you talked about Argentina,
3: mm-hmm.
0: uh, South Africa we talked about. What are the other great bargain destinations?
3: Well, I think when you talk about bargain destinations, it's about the value, m- correct? Value for your money. Um, because of the strength of the dollar, we're seeing still incredible amount of business going to Europe, especially Portugal, um, Spain, and Italy. For Portugal. us, still very hot.
0: Well, Portugal's been hot for a while. Yes. Uh, Spain and Italy and France have always been hot because everybody who books it is a failed art history major. You know it. I know correct. it. Correct. Okay. But Portugal now, the new one that we just did a radio show from mm-hmm. the Azores.
3: Oh, nice. That is yeah. the hot
0: destination now.
3: We are uh, selling some of it, yes.
0: Yeah, and Delta's do not, Delta now has a nonstop. Correct, they do. Yeah. And the flight from New York to the Azores is less in terms of time than New York to L.A. It's Can't totally manageable.
3: Iceland is still hot. And even though I know yeah, that a lot you know of people what? are still going. I've
0: had it with the Blue Lagoon, okay? can um... we Come on. But you know what? Get smart. Now we do the Faroe Islands. Mm-hmm. That's hot. And believe it or not, in the summer months, Greenland has a lot to offer.
3: It does. But you know what? If you stay closer to home, and we, we are finding a lot of our travelers are also wanting to stay, you know, stateside, you've got Utah, you've got Big Sky, an amazing um, lodge that has opened, you've got Montana, um, we're even seeing some of the destinations that people consider for ski, they are looking at it during those, what might be considered lower season. Sure. Beautiful. All around the world. If there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63.
0: Joining me now in person, usually we do it on the phone, is the travel editor of The Wall Street Journal and a regular on this show, as well as our television show on PBS, The Travel Detective, the travel editor of The Wall Street Journal, Mr. Scott McCartney. How are you, sir?
8: I'm good, Peter.
0: You know, everywhere I go these days, whether it's going through Clear at the airport, many airports around the world, like in Doha. And uh, they're starting to do it uh, with with the TSA as well. Um, it's mm-hmm. facial recognition
8: time. Yeah.
0: And there's a lot of good to it, and there's a lot of questions about
8: it. There are a lot of questions about it, and uh, and it's interesting. Airlines and airports are going full speed ahead um, with this. Uh, you're now going to run into facial recognition for boarding flights on JetBlue in New York uh, on in it um, on Delta at uh, at most of its hubs by the end of the year. Um, in Atlanta, they have a whole uh, what they're calling a biometric terminal. You can use your face to check your bag, to go through TSA uh, screening if you're on an international flight, um, and to board the airplane. And uh, no boarding pass, no no passport, no driver's license, just your face. So I understand the seamlessness of it, the one-stop shopping of it.
0: Yeah. But it certainly raises a lot of questions as well.
8: Well, it does raise a lot of questions. It seems the, the questions sort of center around um, there are concerns about accuracy of it. Um, and uh, and the Customs and Border Protection, which is actually running the, the database that makes this work, um, they say they're actually seeing higher accuracy uh, with it um, for two reasons. They have, they have better lighting and, and controlled conditions. And they're only comparing your face against people who are booked on the same flight. Um, So it's not like you're going to randomly match to uh, somebody 12 states away.
0: You know, at the airport in Doha, I went through their system. Mm -hmm. The minute you get to the airport, it reads your face. You put your passport away. You never take out an
8: ID through all the other places you're going to have to go through to check its identity management, right? And and this is really sort of the other privacy concern. Um, the the airport, in, in a sense, is a is an environment where you don't have privacy to begin with. You you've given them your personal information, you've given them your picture um, with a passport. But th- this notion of scanning the crowd and using facial recognition is really what uh, people are concerned about. Um, and the question is, if it does this expand and from the airport uh, to federal office buildings, um, to crowds at uh, presidential rallies. The Secret Service is already starting to use it. Uh, does it expand to uh, the subway? Walking down the street is, and so the, the question is, how much is the government going to know about you? Are they going to know and how where they I go- had and lunch? And, and how things? are
0: they going to use the information? And how
8: are they going to use the information? I mean, right now, right
0: now, right uh, now, I don't think there's a word called an alibi left, because yeah. They'll know if I went through the toll booth. They'll know if I went to the ATM. They'll know if I went to, to the store and bought something at the CVS pharmacy. They're always, unless the cameras aren't working, there's always some sort of a digital record.
8: Yeah, I've been thinking about it. We're here in Las Vegas, and and wherever you go in a Las Vegas hotel, you're on camera. I mean, they, you know, and if they applied facial recognition to that, um, they'll. They'll know where you know where I am at all times, where you are at all times, and a lot of people are uncomfortable with that. I mean, the real, I mean, the trade-off here, and it's not always a comfortable trade-off, is to what extent do you want to trade efficiency and speed? For privacy, Yeah, that's exactly the trade. Now, in the case of, of airports, CBP, CBP says uh, the pictures that you take at boarding or at baggage check-in, um, they only save those for uh, about 24 hours, less than 24 hours, just yep. to make sure nothing happens with the flight.
0: Well, they say that, but let's go back to the days of the body scanners when they first introduced them yeah. at the security checkpoints. And it turns out there was some guy named Vern yeah. in the back room who was looking at somebody's genitals.
8: Yeah, yeah. No, uh, there, there are those concerns. Um, there are pictures they do save. If you're a global entry member, I, this, was, this was news to me. If you're a global entry mem- member and you, you put your fingerprints in, but you also look into the kiosk and it prints out a picture, supposedly for the, so that the officer knows you got the right ticket... Uh, but, um, they save those pictures and they build a gallery of you. And every time a foreign possible to purchase that gallery and put (laughs) it on the coffee table book or,
0: you know know what, you could actually do that. There are enough frequent flyers out there. I promise you that if the, if the DHS said, you know What? We have the last 55 entries you have to the United States in a beautiful, glossy book. Would you like it with the date and times that you flew? People love to be able to say, I'm a frequent flyer. Here are my pictures at different airports looking disheveled after a nine-hour flight.
8: Yeah, and, you know, the, the good news, if there is good news in this, is that uh, the more pictures they have, the more accurate it gets. So they have your disheveled look. They have your, your comb-over look. They have, you know, they have your beard. They have you clean-shaven, uh, and uh, and it really does get better. Uh, but if you're a foreign national and you enter the country, they save the they take a picture of you every time and they save it for 75 years.
0: for se- Just in case when you're 105, you might not do something right. <laughs> well, that's right. Well, the bottom line is this. They're rolling it out in Atlanta. Yeah. They've already started that. Yeah. Uh, how, give me a time frame here.
8: You know, I, I think uh, really over the next year, uh, it, you're going to see it more and more and more. So uh, Delta's in Atlanta, Salt Lake City, Minneapolis. By the end of the year, they're going to have it in all their hubs. Um, Air France says, uh, just one example of one airline. Air France says they'll have it in all their U.S. gateways by the end of 2020. Um, so, really, oh, by you know, over the next 12, 18 months. Um, uh, this is going to become the norm for international travel, um, not just from the United States, but um, as, as, you, as you've experienced all over the world. And uh, and I think it's going to take some getting used to for a lot of travelers. It is. We're talking to Scott McCartney, the travel editor for the Wall Street Journal. I remember in the
0: early days of the body scanning machines you could, you had the right to opt out. You had the right to say, no, I want a personal pat-down. I don't want to go through the machine. Can somebody opt out of this?
8: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And they they say, and we'll see, that, that it always will be optional. Now, the you know the problem with the body skating machines is uh, they make it really inconvenient to opt out and there 's a lot of concern among privacy experts that you end up with the fast lane and the slow lane, and you essentially punish people for opting out the way delta 's doing it that doesn 't happen it 's very interesting. they still have the gate agents at the gate if you walk up to the gate and you don 't and you want to opt out. Uh, You simply present your passport, and you do it the old-fashioned way. The the time savings in this is that the gate agent on an international flight has to match your name to the manifest and has to eyeball your your passport photo and make sure that you are who you say you are. Uh, Automating that is a whole lot more accurate, but you can still do it the old way. Just hand them the passport, and they'll send you on through.
0: And by the way, I'm a big fan of something called preclearance, which is in about a number of airports, started in Canada back in 1950. Yeah. Uh, But you see it in Ireland, you see it in Abu Dhabi, Bermuda, the Bahamas, where you actually clear customs and border protection of the United States in those countries when you come back. Right. And the same protocols would then apply.
8: Yeah, and, and this is, it's, a, it's a different thing when you go through CBP as opposed to just boarding a flight uh, with the airline, um, although you're using ultimately the same facial, facial recognition, same um, uh, database. Uh, but um, yeah, the CBP is certainly using facial recognition more and more, um, both for foreign nationals entering the United States. For U.S. citizens uh, going through, and you'll see it in the pre-clearance locations as as well as in the U.S. locations.
0: And the good thing about pre is, if you are <clears throat> excuse me, if you are a problem, if you are a security risk, they can determine that before you ever board the plane, and you're not going to transport somebody to the United States only to discover it then.
8: Yeah, no, that's that's why the that's why CBP likes it so much. Um, they they get to vet you in person before you uh, get on the airplane, before you get to the United States. Um, you know, there's an expense to it. They're stationing officers overseas at, at all kinds of different locations. Often the location will help pay for it. Oh, in many um, cases, the location yeah. pays for all of it. Yeah. because uh, They did that in Abu Dhabi. It is a, it is a great thing for travelers, uh, but it's also good security. I am waiting for them to do it in the high-volume airports. Heathrow, Charles de Gaulle.
0: That's where I. That's where I need the help.
8: Yeah, and and that's where it's a whole lot more difficult, um, just because of the volume. Uh, you need a lot of real estate to do it in Heathrow to set up a. a uh, U.S. screening um, entry checkpoint, and you you need to be able to segregate all those travelers uh, from others, and so you essentially have to create a U.S. terminal.
5: Hello and welcome to Alaska
3: Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look
1: at one now.
0: My next guest actually acknowledges being from Jersey City, uh, but he's moved to Las Vegas a long time ago. In fact, he's worked here so many times he's come back again permanently as the executive chef at MGM Resorts. Anthony Amoroso, welcome back.
9: Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, appreciate it. What here. does
0: this job mean? I mean, how many different hotels are you overseeing?
9: It's funny you ask. I was trying to count them out in my head before I walked in the room because everybody does it on a different number. Um, the easiest way to look at it is everything domestic, so everything here within the states. Um, I count it and make a number easy for myself as a round number at 20 resorts um, with about 400 food and beverage outlets as a whole.
0: So basically, when you're ordering eggs, you're buying farms.
9: Uh, whole entire farms out of you know probably all the eggs available out of one state. Yes. <laughs>
0: I mean, the consumption figures are usually staggering, right? What's the one consumption figure about what you order for your hotels that that surprises you the most?
9: Uh, I think in some cases, it's probably the items that you would expect to see higher volume in um, that possibly are lower. Um, Eggs probably isn't as outrageous as, as, you know, we we like to believe. Um, Orange juice, those kind of things where you think like these are the daily consumables you would see high numbers in.
0: Okay, orange juice you're buying by the tanker.
9: Orange juice we squeeze by the tanker. So um, if you've ever been to the grocery in the summertime, one of the big giant bins of watermelons, those are about 750 pounds. Most of the properties go through about one of those a day just to make orange juice.
0: Wow. Now, obviously, in, in the world we live in now, sourcing is not the challenge it used to be. So you can just about get anything you want, even if it's not here, flown in every day.
9: Uh, I think, yes, no, you can get anything you want from anywhere uh, via air or, or ground. Uh, our challenges become volume. I think sometimes because the volume is so large, um, procuring, you know, one specific product that maybe everyone in the company might want to have access to, uh, you, you get surprised really quickly on what is and isn't available in those volumes.
0: So what's your biggest challenge? Um,
9: once you start moving into a uh, higher tier, right, availability for prime beef or antibiotic-free or organic and such, the the... The consumption level across the country has grown. Uh, obviously, our consumer consumption has grown, uh, but uh, production hasn't necessarily caught up yet.
0: So basically, kale. <laughs>
9: <laughs> kale, antibiotic-free chicken, organic eggs, those, those type of things. Um, we, we have to reach out to multiple suppliers to make sure we don't have supply chain
0: interruption. And, of course, 10 years ago, nobody ever said the words gluten-free. Also true. Very, right?
9: very true. Um, ha- having all that available and having it, obviously, at the scale that we produce, um, it, it is a bigger challenge than, than common, you know, maybe oranges for orange juice.
0: See, I'm always looking for opportunities. So I would really want to open up an all-gluten restaurant, and I want to call it Gluten for Punishment. That's, <laughs> no? Okay. No. Uh, it's a thought. Uh, but it's not just the food that you're working on. It's the concepts of the F&B. Uh,
9: our, our team is um, very much involved in uh, all these sort of concepting from the ground up uh for wholly sort of owned and concepted all the way to any partnerships that we form with named celebrity chefs uh we we work with those teams very closely sort of understand our market and where they're going to fit within the portfolio of the building in within the city or you know if it's in another city how that fits in in you know a place like springfield or national harbor our process may be a little different than what it is at their corporate team's process, so integrating them also comes through our office. So uh, we, we handle it from conception all the way to ideation to realization stage. Uh, we work through all of the trainings, um, and then obviously our team is very heavy on the procurement. And uh, We are often, you know, promoting internally our talent to sort of staff those areas where those that are coming in from an outside can't bring a chef or bring an operator.
0: We're talking to Anthony Amoroso, the executive <laughs> chef for all the MGM resorts. In a world where everybody's a celebrity chef, you're dealing with a lot of egos. You're dealing with a lot of, of different standards issues and still try to make it within the umbrella of, of your operation.
9: I, I think a lot less ego than is portrayed on reality television. Um, most of the chefs that, that we have the pleasure of working with, um, we have also have prior relationships with as operators. I, I come from a restaurant background. Uh, our senior vice president comes from a full background, all restaurants working for, you know, celebrity chefs. Um, so there, there's a mutual respect, I think, that happens with us and our team. Uh, I don't see a lot of that sort of back end, you know, ego that's like is portrayed in, 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 you know shows on, on on TV where people yell and scream that that doesn't actually really happen in our world but you also
0: have to with elements of quality control because if you're a celebrity chef with 18 restaurants you can't be physically in more than one at a time
9: and and, and again I, I think it comes down to you know us having prior relationships with with a lot of those those operators and, and those guys having the trust in us that we're going to do the right thing In every way possible by their product. Uh, You know, our our job is to make sure that they, as the operator, deliver the product that that we're buying. And their job as the operators to make sure they deliver the product that we're buying. Right. So we have to work together to make sure that that
0: happens. And you're squeezing all the orange juice that you have to have. We do, yes. At least for the last 15 years, part of what is identified with Las Vegas is Cirque du Soleil. In terms of an entertainment venue, they essentially own the town. They have six different shows that are running at any one time, a seventh about to start. And, you know, the d- the definition of a great show is when you want to go see it again. In Broadway, of course, when you walk out singing the theme song, I have a couple of soundtracks from Cirque du Soleil, but I don't sing the, sing the theme song. But here, I keep on going back to at least one or two shows that, uh, that Cirque du Soleil does, Every chance I get. Joining me now, somebody who knows all about that, the senior company manager for Search and a, a former New Yorker, by the way. Can I call you a former New Yorker?
5: I don't think you're ever a former New Yorker. You're a New Yorker your whole life. Okay. A somewhat <laughs> transplanted New Yorker, there Tony oh There we <laughs> How go. How are you, man? Nice to meet
0: you. I mean,
5: six shows.
0: That's seven days a week, just about.
5: Oh, it's seven days a week. Yeah. Somebody's always doing a, a performance one of the nights and uh, I think Saturday and Sunday everybody performs for obvious reasons but right. we we perform seven days a week
0: when you think of the evolution of Cirque du Soleil especially I mean I, I'm I've seen the show all over the world but you see them all just about here are you breaking the shows here too or are you are, are, in terms of introducing new shows all the time
5: Oh, every time we open a show, it's different than the show we've opened. No, but what I'm
0: saying is, do you use Las Vegas as an incubator?
5: Oh, no. Uh, no. So Las Vegas is its own sort of uh, circus heaven and Mecca. Uh, we don't start things here as an out-of-town tryout. Um, sometimes we actually bring them here. Uh, they're on the road, they're in, a, in some sort of a traveling venue, and then we decide to uh, set up a residency here in Las Vegas. Because it's, it's, many times it's, it's almost more cost-efficient to do that.
0: Now, when I say I come to different shows, but I, I like to come back to certain shows more than once, try not to laugh at me, but I'm a big fan of Ka. And the reason why I love Ka so much is different than your other shows. I'm in love with the stage.
5: Well, the stage at Ka is it's unlike anything anyone has ever seen. It, and it's, it's a marvel of engineering. It's a marvel of theatrics. It's it's beautiful and it's uh it gets the job done as a stage too i mean you know it's functional as well as its own piece of art so um if you if you love engineering and you're kind of that that person uh absolutely caught would be the show and i was there for a couple of years and i loved every minute of
0: it i mean that's a show where you specifically built the theater around the stage
5: uh yes well on all of our shows we've We've built the theaters around the show itself. Um, with very few exceptions, uh, O being one of them and Mystere being one of them, every other theater was reconstructed to take Cirque in. It was tailor-made. Uh, but we blew out the back walls. We went into the casino and we strip it down to the absolute bare minimum and then we put our shows in. Yes, and uh, the results speak for themselves. If you've ever been in a Cirque theater here in Las Vegas, each one is its own sort of personality and uh, beautiful.
0: What's the lessons that you've learned about your audience after all these years?
5: Uh, that's a great question. Uh, the, the thing that we learn most about our audience is there are so many return visitors to Las Vegas, and like you said, so many people come back to Cirque time and time again, uh, and they see one particular show, or they see all of the shows. So we try to remind people that there are six, seven different shows, and it's not like, oh, I've seen Cirque du Soleil, because Just because you've seen one doesn't mean you've seen them all.
0: Well, speaking of that, you've got a new one opening up in October
5: called Run. That's correct. And that is geared... That's a different kind of a show. That's a completely different show. I mean, we've almost stripped it down and started from scratch all over again. Uh, Traditionally here, we've done 90-minute performances. This is going to be a 75-minute format. Um, It is geared... Not for your traditional Las Vegas visitor. I mean, we see the demographic of Las Vegas shifting, um, and we know that we have to provide entertainment options for across that spectrum. How is it shifting? It's getting younger. Um, the attention, the attention span for for people is getting shorter. <laughs> no Casinos kidding. don't want you sitting somewhere for 90 minutes anymore. So they want. <laughs> they right? never.
0: Excuse me. They never wanted. They never to wanted you, minutes. but they
5: were willing to go. They were willing to go for 90 minutes. And we've been very fortunate that our partners at, at MGM have, you know, they've supported everything that we've tried to do along the way. So we don't take that for granted. And they said, well, we'd like you to look at a well, slightly different format. We said, sure, we can do that. And I think we put together a beautiful show. And this Run. is
0: not a show in the traditional Cirque du Soleil style of acrobatics. It's something, it's stunts. Correct.
5: Um, This is something we also uh, find it's a challenge because people have uh, such specific ideas of what Cirque du Soleil should be. And this is going to shock a lot of people. This is not your grandfather's Cirque du Soleil. (laughs) The
3: The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4.
0: My next guest has a title that most of you would probably die to do, and I would probably die trying. Uh, He's actually the corporate mixologist for all the MGM resorts, which means he comes up with all the interesting libations that are then marketed across the brand, uh, but can also talk about, and I hope he will, trends about what's going on with people and their expectations about what they're doing at the bar, good, bad, ugly, and otherwise. Craig Shuttler, how are
2: you? I'm doing well, sir. Thanks for having me.
0: What does a corporate mixologist mean?
2: Uh, I'm still trying to figure that out. Okay, uh, give me give me a, a shot. Uh, so, sort of oversee the programming from the guest experience in a beverage outlet to the cocktails to training the staff to selecting the spirits identity for the venue to
0: does every venue have an identity when it comes to spirits
2: um depending on if the venue needs an identity Um, so give me an example so we've got you know roughly 430 different venues where you can get a drink in our company and some venues are a walk-up casino bar because that's just what they need to be some venues like carbone focuses on rum or uh John George focuses on international whiskey. Uh, Juniper at Park MGM, where we are now, uh, is gin. Um, Mama Rabbit, which we just opened last month, is tequila and mezcal. Um, so it depends on what venue it is. If the if there's a need and if the guests going to that uh, would would need a certain
0: and of trip. course you know for those people who remember the movie Sideways you know Merlot has had it um, <laughs> more or less. Uh, then there was the the big Cosmo craze for a long time. Yep. Sex What's, in the City. Right. What's the hot drink now?
2: Uh, I don't think there, it's whiskey would be.
0: What, American whiskey or single malt?
2: Uh, it, it doesn't discriminate. It's it's pretty much all. American whiskey has definitely taken the boom. Um, one, because uh, there was a scarcity a little bit, a little while back, because no one foresaw the, the need for it. And then you just you can't rush it. You got to wait 10, 12, 15 years. So if you don't have enough, you just don't have it. And, then, you know, inherently everybody wants what you can't get. Um, Japanese whiskey is still extremely popular. The
0: Japanese single malts have astounded me, they've done such a great job.
2: It, it's the you know the, the the Japanese way. They 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 make everything with with passion and with with purpose. Um, and there's just not enough of it, at least coming to the states. Um, so it's one of those things that have become very difficult to find um, and highly sought after.
0: So single malts are doing great. Yep. What about bourbon?
2: Bourbon's been great too. Um, you're seeing a lot more distilleries open up. Well, uh, that's what I'm
0: noticing all across the country in some unlikely places. Yeah. I mean, I don't, is there a state now that's not doing artisanal bourbon?
2: Uh, if there is, there's very few of them. Yeah. If there's not, actually. Um, but yeah, it's it's you know still some of the big brands are, are holding strong. There's a lot of new innovation that you see in in some of the the the, the ingredients that are being used to, to make the product. But it, it's a, it's great to see the, the diversity in the portfolio. Of you know, the we brands. talked
0: about single malt. We know about the Scotch obviously. We know about the Irish. We know about the Japanese. But now we're seeing single malts being done in Tasmania, uh, in Iceland. And then all across the United States you're seeing states, Texas for example, that are doing American single malt.
2: Yeah. Um, So just being the grain. So we're talking about barley. We're talking about single malts. But yes, it's definitely a category that was untouched for a very long time because the the Scottish were king in that category. Um, And then obviously the the Japanese followed suit. It's great to see more, you know, even domestic and even places you wouldn't necessarily think can grow barley. Um, producing some single malts that are fantastic Iceland would be an example I was actually there last week Um, and
0: uh, did you try the single malt I did and
2: it, it was good. I mean, it's you always when you take single malt, you're always comparing it to a, either a of Japanese course. wishing or a scotch. So you're, you're sort of doing it and injustice in its own right. But it's very interesting to see the, the, the sort of characteristic of it based on where it is being made and, and what the, 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 the country, whether it's the water source or, or, or the agricultural practices that sort of give it a little nuance. And the, the woods are also another thing what cask is it finished in? Um, so it's, it's really cool to see uh, the, 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 the many different offerings now.
0: All right, so let's recap. Merlot's toast, Cosmo yes, was last year or last couple of years. I've also seen gin coming back uh, with a lot of different artisanal distilleries popping up.
2: Yeah, I definitely see, definitely agree. Um, I don't think gin ever went anywhere. To be honest, I think it was always there. It just got sort of foreshadowed by the whiskey boom because you can't you, you can't rush time when it comes to whiskey. So in in the gin category, you can make it, bottle it, and sell it in, in hours. Where it's always been a prominent, it's very big in cocktails. It's it's you know most bartenders' favorite ingredient to do cocktails because of the botanical structure and it's got some backbone, but it's not overly overpowering. So it's not neutral as vodka, but not as big as a single malt. Um, so it gives us a lot of flexibility when we start creating cocktails.
0: So now I'm going to ask you to put on your prognostication hat. Oh boy, what's going to be the new hot drink?
2: The new hot drink. I think it's not going to be a drink. I think it's going to be an experience. So I think the the clientele, the consumer now wants more than just liquid in a glass. You, you hear the Instagrammable sort of phrase. Um, so it's more of what does the entire package look like? Not just here's a liquid and drink it, but what does it feel like? What does it smell like? What does it sound like? How do you interact with the menu? So Mama Rabbit, we have a, a very interesting menu that's a, a map of Mexico, and we break out all the distilleries in both Oaxaca and Jalisco on this elevation map so think of a topography map so each page is a different level of sea level and it shows where the distilleries are which then cross references to uh the list of tequilas and mezcals which is one of the
0: largest so basically mama rabbit means designated driver <laughs> i just <laughs> want to make sure we're on, on on the
8: same page uber it means uber uber of course
3: you've been listening to peter greenberg worldwide catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world